Happy Met Gala Day, everyone. Happy Met Gala. It won't be when you're listening, but it is today when we're recording. So I hope we're sending you all really good fashion-y vibes right now. All you fashionistas out there, live your life. Absolutely. Be campy. Yeah. Um, whatever that means. Whatever that means. Be live your life. Wear feathers and sequins and chandeliers. And your name written on your purse. Uh-huh. I love that idea. And carry your own head around. Yeah. Jared Leto. <laughs> Big fans. Mm-hmm. We've just been looking at all of our favorite outfits. Lady Gaga with the four costume four changes. Four different costume changes, girl. Yeah. yeah. That's a theater major if I've ever seen one. Mm-hmm. Right? Listen, today is a very special episode because it's our 10th one. Double digits, baby. We did it. Mm-hmm. We can stop, but we're not going to, you know? Why does 10 mean we can stop? I don't know. I feel like it's a monumental thing. It's like, oh, it's a round number. I don't want to stop. Mm-hmm. So, I'm happy. We did it. We got we to 10. We did it. Thanks. Oh, that was a really good... Did you hear that? I did. <laughs> that was a gross sound. Nice little um, slosh in there. Um, Cute. <laughs> <laughs> We're really happy that you've stuck around with us in our shenanigans for and 10 whole episodes. Yeah, made it so that we stay motivated to make 10 episodes. Yeah. I think we would either way, but it's good to have <laughs> yeah. some listeners. <laughs> we would talk regardless, so <laughs> thanks for listening Whether or not you listen, so it's nice to know some people actually want to. Yeah. Now we're both just we're really like, adjusting. Anyway, <laughs> actually settle on it. Okay. Um, you good? Yeah, I'm good. Uh, hey, Mom. Tell me about... Wait, what? Oh, go ahead. Oh, this is Millennial Poet Society, Welcome. by the way. Did we, I guess we kind of said that. Well, who are you? I'm Emily Klein. And I'm Marguerite Virginia. We're your co-hosts. This is Millennial Poet Society, where we talk about poetry and everything else that has nothing to do with poetry. Everything. And weave it all together there. seamlessly, right? It's what we try right? to do. <laughs> right. Do. <laughs> right. You can't respond, so I'll respond for you. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Doing fabulous. Uh, what were you going to say? I was going to ask you what you're eating. I am eating. Let me figure that out. Ben and Jerry's peanut butter fudge core yes. ice cream. Not sponsored, but we'd love to oh be God. sponsored. Um, so it's got chocolate and peanut butter ice creams with mini peanut butter cups and a peanut butter fudge core, which oh, the core mostly tastes like peanut butter, but... Um, yeah, it's real good. I haven't had this one before. You found it for me yesterday at Fairway. Also not sponsored. But hey. I mean, we need groceries, so. <laughs> Anything's better than uh, the prices of the nice, fancy grocery stores of the Upper West Side, so. Mm-hmm. Fairway's good. Yeah, Fairway's great. What are you eating over there? I've got a nice spoonful of chocolate therapy. Mmm. And it's exactly That's a good what name. I you have chocolate ice cream with chocolate cookies and swirls of chocolate pudding ice cream. Wow. It's very good. It's very rich, but it's like that overloaded chocolate taste that you always sort of need. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
So I'm quite happy. This is one of my go-to flavors. The only bad thing is that it's not lactose-free. Yeah. I wish Both that of we, us are lactose I know. <laughs> I wish that they had more dairy-free flavors. But I recently saw they came out with one. Oh, it sounded so good. It was like a chocolate peanut butter thing, but it was. But you're not. So their yogurt one, you're not talking about, right? Because that's not dairy free. No, I'm talking about the dairy free, specifically vegan Mm -hmm. ones. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I'm not the biggest fan of chocolate ice cream as a thing. That's why when you were like there yesterday, and I was asking if there were any without chocolate ice cream. To me, it it like. I feel like I can feel the sugar in it. Mm. Like, I feel like it makes my teeth feel... Like, I feel like it leaves a residue on my teeth. That vanilla ice cream doesn't for some reason. Okay. Okay. I don't know. Like, I prefer... When I was younger... And I mean, I will still do this, but I mostly just will get vanilla ice cream with other stuff. But I would prefer to, like, make chocolate ice cream with... Like a... Vanilla and, like, a fudge or, like, a chocolate syrup. Yeah, Rather yeah. than getting actual chocolate ice cream. Sure, sure. Um, but... Yeah. And now you know our favorite Ben and Jerry's flavors, and if anyone wants to send us some, I would... We have a P.O. box, but that's not a good place to send ice cream, so um, let us know, contact us, and we'll be a judge of whether or not we can give you our home address to send us some Ben and Jerry's. If you want to send us Ben and Jerry's, we will We will set up an application uh, process to... Email at us. Ooh. Email at us. (laughs) Email us. Email at us. (laughs) Uh, and Millennial Poet Society at gmail.com. And by the way, you can also email us your poetry um, submissions. We Absolutely. do bonus episodes. Uh, and we have one coming out tomorrow. Well, we have one that will have come out on Tuesday. Today <laughs> it's coming out tomorrow as of recording, but it will come out on Tuesday. Hopefully you've checked it out and um, have checked out all of our other Who's to Say episodes. And... Yeah, you can send us your submissions or tell someone in your life who is a writer and has some work, whether it's poetry or, like, song lyrics and rap or Mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, We consider poetry to be many things. Um, And so we would love to share your work and get it out into the world, whether or not it's something that you pursue as a profession or want to pursue or it's just something you do in your free time and you work as, like, an accountant or whatever. That's great, too. Everyone love it. Yeah, it needs some sort of creative outlet, and we want to be able to share your words with people. So send that on over to, as Emily said before, millennialpoetssociety at gmail.com. And you can find that email address on our Instagram page as mm-hmm. well. Um, we are MPS underscore podcast on Instagram. And if you go there, you can give us a follow. And then you can also um, send us an email. There should be a little icon under our bio. You can just click that and... Get right to our email address. Yeah. We just want to hear from you regardless. So yeah, yeah. That call was a us, nice... beep us if you want to reach us, you know? Yep, yep. Um, that was just a nice little segue for me to be able to get that in there because I always forget always it. Always forget, so. yeah. Um, Do we have any corrections today? Are we good? I think we're okay. Good. Yeah. Well, we'll say it now and then have ten more next week, so. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, yeah. think, I think you go first this week. <clears throat> I do. Yes, I do go first this week. Yay. Um, all right. I've got two guys today who are pretty cool, have done some awesome things. I'm going to start with Philip Larkin. Philip Larkin? Philip Larkin. Tell me about him. He was born August 9th, 1922 in Coventry, England. Coventry. Coventry. And attended King's uh, City... He, okay, wait. He attended... <laughs> 
off to a great start. Um, he attended City's King Henry VIII School between 1930 and 1940, which I believe was probably like primary school, grade school, sure. all that sort of stuff. Um, and made regular contributions to the school magazine, The Coventryan, uh, mm-hmm. which he um, between which he edited. I phrased that very weird. I said, which he, between 1939 and 1940, he also helped edit. <laughs> so Myra's that really just wasn't a sentence. Um... Actually, was I was going to say no, but I was doing this one last night and my other one I did today. So, yeah, a little bit tired last night. Had just watched Game of Thrones. Was very, oh. my heart was racing. I, just lots and of things crying. going through my mind. God. So, yeah, I, well, I don't want to say spoilers for people, but nope. we'll talk about it later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, back to Philip. Uh, so after going to city, city's King Henry VIII school, he then went to St. John's College, Oxford, um, which I believe, so Oxford is a university, obviously, and right. then they have, like, colleges within the university. Sure. So I think St. John's College is just one of those, um, like, individual colleges of Oxford University. Um, he was not drafted into the war because he had failed his army medical exam due to his poor eyesight. Aww. So, I mean, the dude Me too. lucked out that way. Um and so he was therefore able to complete his degree without interruption, graduating in 1943 with first-class honors in English. Amazing. Yeah. His first poem was published in a national... His first poem published in a national weekly was titled Ultimatum, which appeared in The Listener in 1940. In June 1943, uh, three poems were published in Oxford Poetry, a stone church... Uh, in Oxford, like the publication Oxford Poetry. Mm-hmm. And they were titled A Stone Church Damaged by a Bomb mythological introduction and I dreamed of an outthrust arm of land um okay. he moved home for a bit after graduating moved in with his parents again we we know that feeling that oh yes that, that like small interim thing. after college yeah before you like, get on your feet again yeah that last chance to be a kid all right uh so he moved home um and then he just for a little bit and then was appointed librarian at Wellington Shropshire Shropshire. Shropshire. <laughs> in November 1943. I love England and just the UK has such great names for their towns. They I listen do. to a podcast where anytime they talk, like, do feature, it's a true crime podcast. Surprise. Spoiler. But anytime they talk about, um, like, a murder that happened in the UK, they do, uh, what is, like, a geography lesson. And then they, and so they just talk about, like, all these towns that are nearby to where the thing happened yeah. that are just, like, funny names. Um, what'd you say? Schlopshire? Schlopshire? <laughs> uh, yep. Schlopshire. <laughs> Schlopshire. New name for it. Uh, <laughs> la la la, where was I? He. <laughs> uh, okay, so he became the librarian there. Yeah. Um, here he studied to be a professional librarian while continuing to write and publish. In 1945, he had 10 poems, um, Ten poems. Ten poems. <laughs> I said like plublums or something. <laughs> ten poems. <laughs> poems appeared in poetry from Oxford in wartime. <laughs> the name of the publication. And later that year, um, the those poems were also included in a publication called The North Ship. He also published two novels, Jill and A Girl in Winter, uh, both in 1946 and. <laughs> Are you okay today? No. Is your tongue numb from the ice cream? <laughs> no, I just took stupid notes. 
One of them was 1946, and I think the other was 1947, but I said in 1946 and 1946. They were published in two different years, so it was either 1945 and 1946 or 1946 and 1947. They were published in those years. Close proximity to each other. Between 1945 and 1947, those two novels were published. Great. Yep. He then became assistant librarian at the University College of Leicester. Hey. Hey. I literally put in my notes... Hey. <laughs> I love when I do that to him. I'm like, make note here to be funny. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and we're saying a because um, two of our dear um, dear friends from college studied there when they studied abroad. Um, yay Lester. Yay Lester. He completed his studies and became an associate of the Library Association um, in 1949. And then in 1950, he became sub-librarian at Queen's University in Belfast, Ireland. A Belfast. Northern Ireland. A, A to me, because <laughs> I studied in Northern Ireland when I studied abroad, just not at Queen's University. I was at Ulster. Yes, Ulster. Um, I don't know what a sub-librarian is, though. Like and a substitute? I don't think so. Like, I think maybe so he was, like, like underneath not, the head librarian. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, while he was there in Belfast, um, where they also film a lot of Game of Thrones, yes. if you didn't know that, we you can know do like, a, you can do a Game of Thrones tour there and like go to the different sites where they did film. Yeah, I did it before I had ever watched Game of Thrones. And then like, I look back at those pictures and I'm like, Hey, I recognize that now. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, so while he was in Belfast there, uh, he applied fresh vigor to his poetry and had a small collection privately printed in 1951 called XX Poems. Um, and there were only a hundred copies published. Oh. So I would bet there, those are worth a lot of money now. Probably. Um, uh, Marvel Press published his next collection called The Less Deceived in 1955. And that same year, he took up the position of librarian at the University of Hull. Don't know where that is, um, but he went there. Okay. I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if like it's in the UK or, or I mean in England or in Ireland. Mm. Um, not sure. But that collection uh, propelled him and his reputation um, into being one of the foremost figures in the 20th, in 20th century poetry. Nice. His next collection, The White Sun Weddings, um, wasn't published until 1964, so like almost 10 years later. Uh, it was also well-received and widely acclaimed. In 1965, he was awarded the Queen's Gold Medal for Poetry. Uh, a, between 1961 and 1971, Larkin contributed monthly reviews of jazz recordings for the Daily Telegraph, um, and those reviews were brought together and published in 1970 in a collection called All What Jazz, A Record mm. Diary, 1961 to 1968. I think they were uh, eventually two collections, so that first one was like 1961 and 1968, and then I think there was another one from 1968 to 71 or whatever. Nice. Um, he also edited the Oxford Book of... 20th Century English Verse, that's the name of it, um, which was published in 1973. And his last collection, High Windows, was published in 1974. And that solidified him as one of the, as quote, one of the finest poets in English literary history. Um, his poem, <clears throat> Abade, Abade, Abade. Uh, your guess is as good as mine on that one. Okay. This is a oh, bad. <laughs> Um, Abade, his last great, po this is a quote, I think I already said that, but Abade, his last great poem was published in the Times Literary, oh wait, I just put quotes around it because I copy and pasted it from, um, 
I didn't feel like re-summarizing it from the Poetry Foundation. So You're so good with your notes. Usually I'm like, yeah, this is verbatim. It's fine. <laughs> okay, so it's not a quote. It's just directly from that website. Um, Abaday, his last great poem, was published in the Times Literary Supplement in December 1977. Um, if this had been... Oh, this is the quote part. Um, if this had been the only poem Larkin had ever written, his place in English poetry would still be secure. Holy shit. So they're saying, and I read it. High praise. Um, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> I need it to like re- I need to read it again because <laughs> I was very tired when I read it. But <laughs> I read it. Yes, yeah, so I really like the po- I, I really like the poem that I chose and some other poems that I read too. That just wasn't the first one that so I clicked funny. on. Um, but yeah, so people really like it. Um, (laughs) a collection of his essays and reviews was published in November, 1983, um, called as required writing miscellaneous pieces, 1955 to 1982. And, um, it won the WH Smith literary award for 1984. Um, some other of his awards and recognitions in 1971, he, 1971, (laughs) You can slow down and, like, breathe, you know? Like, you don't need to rush. We can cut out. We can, you know, In... take our time. <laughs> that's just me not talking well. Like, that's not me. <laughs> like, um, In 1975, he won the CBD, or CBE. I was like, hey, he won the CBD. <laughs> just came out naturally. The CBE, which I don't know what that is, and I didn't check. Um, it's some kind of award. <laughs> We are professionals, and we know the answers to all of your questions. Hey, listen, if the Poetry Foundation didn't feel like clarifying, I don't feel like I need to clarify. Okay. Um, <laughs> you're equivalent to the Poetry Foundation. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, if they weren't, like, hey, whatever. Um, you can look it up. Do, do your own homework. Don't look up CBD and expect to find the award we're looking for, though. No, CBE as an elephant. Um, as an enemy. Then it what? As an enemy. Oh, I thought you said an anemone. <laughs> okay. In 1976, he won the German Shakespeare Prize, but prize spelled in German, so it's P R I E P R I E S. So it's fun to prize prize <laughs> prize. <laughs> um, he chaired the Booker Prize panel in 1977. He was made Companion of Literature in 1978. He served on the Literature Panel of the Arts between 1980 and 82. He was made Honorary Fellow of the Library Association in 1980. In 1982, University of Hull made him a professor. Um, In 1984, he received an honorary um, doctorate. Yeah, he received... Okay, yeah. He received an honorary doctorate in literature from Oxford University. All right. Blow through it. Blow through it. And was elected to the board of the British Library. Wow. (laughs) Lots of things. Um, In 1984, he was given the chance to succeed Sir John Betjeman as Poet Laureate, but declined. Betjeman. (laughs) Um, Betjeman can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) It might have... It was maybe supposed to be Benjamin, um, but I spelled it Betjeman. So (laughs) that's what it was. Yep. Um, he declined <laughs> and because he was unwilling to accept the high public profile and associated media attention 
attention of the position, which I think is interesting because it's like if he was such a successful and acclaimed poet, he must have already been somewhat in the limelight. But I guess he could be a bit more like choosy about how much he went out in public for that versus mm-hmm. having to be the public the laureate, poet laureate. Um, so this is again a quote from um, Poetry Foundation. Yep. Uh, they said, despite his wide popularity, Larkin, this is a quote from someone else within that quote, uh, he shied from publicity, rarely consented to interviews or readings, cultivated his image as a right-wing curmudgeon, Mm -hmm. and grew depressed at his fame. Uh, that was according to J.D. McClatchy in the New York Times book review. Um, McClatchy. That's cute. Yeah. Um, in 1985, Larkin was admitted to the hospital with an illness in his throat. Um, they didn't say what it was, but they just said an illness in his throat and was operated on to remove his esophagus. Oh, um, awful. so his health began, began deteriorating. Um, he was prized the order of the companion of honor, um, but was unable to attend the investiture at Buckingham palace because of his health. Mm. And he died of cancer in December, 1985 at the age of 63. That's not a very long life. Yeah. Um, and the Poetry Foundation said, Larkin achieved acclaim on the strength of an extremely small body of work, just over 100 pages of poetry in four slender volumes that appeared at almost decade-long inter- intervals. So that's just... So, like, he still speaks a, a lot. Himself, yeah, it speaks though. a lot to his work because it's like he didn't put that much out, but it's still, like, <clears throat> he's still considered one of the prominent poets of the 20th century. I'm trying to feel, feel like there's a there's a performer like a musician that does that yeah like, or did that did that does that i can't remember mm-hmm. it's like they went so long in between their albums and people were still like oh i mean adele oh, kind of does Dylan that did it i feel like there was yeah. like a time or like he was releasing albums but like he went from like being number one mm-hmm. to like all his other stuff was kind of shitty and then he came out with his last album those are fighting words i like, feel like I mean, I don't know. This is what people said. Oh. I like him. All his stuff. Um, <laughs> <Fighting words. laughs> I just feel like there's people who have very strong opinions about Bob Dylan. I like Bob Dylan. Um, I'm just reading you the highlights of the critics. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So he didn't actually publish a ton of stuff, but he received all this acclaim. Um, and his collections present a poetry from which even people... Who distrust poetry, most people, can take comfort and delight. Um, that was according to X.J. Kennedy in New Criterion. Hmm. Um, so that also says a lot, too. Like, people who aren't necessarily in the poetry or find it very approachable find his work approachable. And I can see that even in just the few poems that I read. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I feel like it's something you can definitely, like, it's not this... When you read it, you don't necessarily feel like you're reading this like heighty, heightened language thing that mm-hmm, some people mm-hmm. might feel a bit like stick th- other people stick their nose up at or whatever. Um, so, uh, and then Larkin employed the traditional tools tools of poetry, rhyme, stanza, and meter to explore the often uncomfortable or terrifying experiences thrust upon common people in the modern age. Huh. Uh, yeah. So, like a bit of stability. In the hectic life of the current population, I guess. 
Yeah, well, and yeah, he's, like, approaching these things that are maybe uncomfortable for people, but, like, making them approachable. Right, exactly. And presenting them in a way that, yeah, like, you can I sort know of talk it, about it. I can at least read this and know how it's supposed to sound. Yeah. And then I'll get to the content in a second, you know? Yeah. That's nice. And it's interesting because I feel like his poetry, like, it seems very modern to me. Like, I was yeah. surprised to find out, like, I read his poems before I researched him, and I was surprised to find out when he was alive because it seems... It just, it seems very modern to me. Um, so the poem that I chose is called The Mower. Okay. Like a grass mower? Like a lawnmower. Okay. Yeah. That's what it's called. Not <laughs> like a grass, a grass mower. mower. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, it's called The Mower. The mower stalled twice. Kneeling, I found a hedgehog jammed up against the blades. Killed. It had been in the long grass. I had seen it before and even fed it once. Now I had mauled its unobtrusive world unmendably. Burial was no help. Next morning I got up and it did not. The first day after a death, the new absence is always the same. We should be careful of each other. We should be kind while there is still time. So... I really liked that because it put, again, reading the line, and when I was doing the research, reading the line um, that he used his poetry to explore the often uncomfortable and terrifying experiences thrust upon common people in the modern age, like, it's very, like, he's just, it's not just a hedgehog, but it's all, it's not a human, like, he's not talking about human right. death, but then he brings it to the very real human world, it's like... He personifies it, yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah, he's bringing this, maybe something that people don't think very highly of, this hedgehog that, like, oh, you accidentally hit it with a lawnmower, like, it happens, but to then talk about and say, like, you don't know when someone's gonna die, you don't know right. when, like, your mom might die, when your friend, or, like, when there might be a natural disaster and all these people, so it's like, mm -hmm. you need to be kind to each other and take advantage of the time that you have, right. And, and he's like, he, he didn't have anything against this hedgehog. Like he fed he it once to. and he did. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, just be careful and be, be wary of each other and be conscious of each other as you're going about your day, even complete strangers, like being conscious of them. And like, maybe if you, someone bumps into you before you like give them shit or whatever, maybe look into their face and see if they're having a bad day and maybe like. You just need to let something go. Right, right. You don't need to react to everything in a way that is going to, like, be negative. Maybe think Combative, about... Yeah. yeah. maybe think about how that's going to affect the other person rather than how they're affecting you. Right, and, exactly. I mean, I've said it before, but, like, you're the only person in life that you can control. So, mm -hmm. exactly. try to... Try to be the positive person in other people's lives. If yeah. you... if Especially if you feel like you need someone like that in your life right now. Like, there's definitely other people who need that. And if you do make a mistake or do something wrong, like, you know, run over a hedgehog, mm -hmm. you still do everything you can to try and make it better mm -hmm. by, you know, burial or mm -hmm. then just, like, bringing that lesson with you in the rest of your life saying, you know what, we, we should just take more time and be mm -hmm. kind and give when appreciation we can. for the, yeah, other beings in our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so you see, like, that's not... It's not, uh, like, super romantic It's not flowery style. language. Yeah. Like, was probably pretty common, I, I would say, up until his lifetime. I feel like everything really changed in the, like, 40s and 50s. Yeah, so. yeah. But it's just not, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's a very just like straightforward way even though he's using that obviously to then like make a bigger point it's It's still you you know yeah yeah it's got that similar i mean i at least one of my poets this week anyway but like it is kind of echoing this fact of like it's that simple story that can have a really good and like profound meaning to somebody Mm -hmm. if you want it to yeah but it's not pushing this like over the top mm-hmm. oh the mystery of life yeah. you know yeah. on you mm-hmm. it's it's just like this is what happened to me and this is my thought on it and maybe it resonates with you yeah you know that's really i, I like that kind of poetry that it's not mm-hmm. like pushing it down your throat like this is what i mean when i say these metaphors yeah <laughs> you know yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah good. so that was philip larkin thanks philip larkin for the words yeah now I'm going to talk about Claude McKay. Okay. So he was born Festus Claudius McKay. So His name was Festus? Yeah. Oh, yeah. How old was he? Who, like, when is he from? <laughs> he was born <laughs> September 15th, 1989. No, he's like recent and his name was Festus? 1989, I wouldn't say is recent. Nice. Sorry, sorry, 1889. Okay, that's 1889. what I, I was like. People that are born in 1989 are only a few years older than us, Mark. 1889. 1889. Yes. I was going to say. Yeah. Oh, Festus. I was like, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> 1989 um, was not. Yeah. Uh, so he was born then <laughs> in um, in. Nairney Castle near James Hill in Upper Clarendon Parish, Jamaica. Cool. Um, The place, uh, they referred to that place, um, that like area, as Sunnyville. Um, He referred to it and the people, like the local people referred to it as that. So that's how I will refer to it um, in the rest of my notes. Sunnyville. Uh, He was a key figure in 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 the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, and he was educated by his older brother, who was a teacher, and who had a library of English novels, poetry, and scientific texts. Um, so he did, and there was also a neighbor, uh, when he went to go live with his brother, uh, that was an Englishman who encouraged him and shared his, um, the works of English writers that he had in his home with him as well. So he was brought up, um, in Jamaica, being exposed to these, like, English writers and English literature, Yes. Um, yes, I needed I needed to do my like mouth jaw warm ups before oh, I started talking well, today. Flatter today. Yeah, you'd think talking at a retail store for eight hours in the day would warm up my jaw enough, but um, yeah. maybe I Guess just needed not. some more customers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, go go shop, please. Um, Nondescript places, but just go shop. <laughs> go shop. You can figure out figure it out. Um, all right. So he began writing poetry at the age of ten. And the Englishman, that was his name, or his last name was Jackal. Um, so Jackal, the Englishman, <laughs> is how I have him in here. Jackal the Englishman. Jackal the Englishman uh, advised McKay to stop mimicking the English poets and begin producing verse in Jamaican dialect. Yes, yes. So I thought, yeah. Wow, I thought that was that's really so cool. rare for like a white man to be like, your culture <clears throat> might be better at this mm-hmm. than my culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, they didn't, I mean, they didn't specifically say that he was a white Englishman, but I assumed that By referring to him as an Englishman, most likely. Um, So, at the age of 17, he left Sunnyville to apprentice as a woodworker in Brownstown. 
he studied there for a little while, but then he left to work as a constable in the Jamaican capital, Kingston. While he was in Kingston, he experienced uh, extensive racism. Yeah. His native place of Sunnyville was predominantly black, and so he had been brought up to be very proud of um, being black, and he was mostly surrounded by people like him. Yeah. But uh, Kingston was predominantly white, and so many... Uh, and so... Oh, so... Um, like in the biographies I was reading and everything, they were like, that was his first major exposure to racism. And, um, he was considered inferior and, uh, capable of only menial tasks. So he became disgusted, um, understandably with the city's bigoted society and within a year moved back to Sunnyville. Yeah. Um, throughout his time, throughout the time that he was in Brownstown and in Kingston, he continued writing poetry. And once he was back home, with Jackal, um, the Englishman's encouragement and support, he published uh, verse, um, uh, the verse collections Songs of Jamaica and Constab Ballads in London in 1912. So he published these two um, collections. And these two volumes portray opposing aspects of life, of black life in Jamaica. Songs of Jamaica presents an almost celebratory portrait of peasant life. Consta Ballads uh, presents a bleaker perspective on the plight of Jamaican blacks. Mm. Um, he won an award and a stipend from the Jamaican Institute of the Arts and Sciences for Songs of Jamaica. Wow. And he used uh, that stipend to finance a trip to America. It, it said a trip to America, but it's like he, he stayed. <laughs> yeah. It a was one a, way ticket. Yeah. To America. Yeah. It was a failed vacation or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um,. So, uh, he, in 1912, he arrived in South Carolina, then traveled to Alabama and enrolled at the Tuskegee Institute, where he studied for about two months and then transferred to Kansas State College. Um, in 1914, he left school entirely, so I don't think he actually graduated with a degree. Mm. Um, uh, but then he moved to New York City and worked various jobs. Uh, still experiencing racism, they said, like, after he moved to New York City, he, like, experienced racism. But I'm like, I think they just mean when he moved to America, he still, like... Right. He North Carolina, to... Alabama, New York City. Like, no matter where he was, there was racism. Yeah. Um, just, yeah. Um, and so he was inspired to continue writing poetry um, from his experiences. So, uh, in 1917, under the pseudonym Eli Edwards, he published two poems in the periodical Seven Arts. Uh, his work was discovered by Frank Haddis, or Hades, um, who included some of his other poems in Pearson's magazine. And then um, he, uh, McKay, befriended Max Eastman. It, I think it was Eastman. I spelled it very strangely in my notes, but I'm pretty sure it was Eastman. Okay. Um, <laughs> he was a communist sympathizer and editor of the magazine Liberator. Um I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know why they, they, uh, had to specify that he was a communist sympathizer. <laughs> like, it doesn't yeah. necessarily come up again. Like, it doesn't come up again like it did with, um, Dorothy Parker where she right. was, like, blacklisted right. or whatever. Like, sure. it talks later about how he made a trip to the, um, USSR and, like, attended, like, this communist conference and whatever. But it's also, like, it doesn't, nothing happened because of that. So why are, okay. Yeah. It's just something from life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so well, this guy categorized people. Yeah, this guy was an editor of the magazine called Liberator, and he published more poems in the magazine, more of um, McCade's poems in the magazine. 
and notably the inspirational poem, If We Must Die. Hmm. Uh, the poem defended black rights and threatened retaliation of, for prejudice and abuse. Um, and in um, a book called Black Poets of the United States, Jean Wagner noted that If We Must Die transcends specifics of race and is widely prized and is, as an inspiration to persecuted people throughout the world. Um, Quote, along with the will to resistance of black, uh, along with the will to resistance of black Americans that it expresses, Wagner wrote, it voices also the will of oppressed people of every age who, whatever their race and whatever their religion, are fighting with their backs against the wall to win their freedom. Mm -hmm. After publishing that poem, he began two years of travel um, and work abroad, during which time he published another collection in 1920 called Spring in New Hampshire. He returned to the U.S. in 1921 and involved himself in various social causes and published Harlem Shadows, um, a collection which was named for a poem in his previous collection. And um, uh, that poem was about the plight of black prostitutes in the degrading urban environment. Uh, but McKay also had used that poem to symbolically present the degradation of the entire black race. Mm -hmm. um, so the collection Harlem Shadows was... Uh, um, compiled <laughs> uh, works from previous volumes and periodicals uh, containing many of his most acclaimed, acclaimed poems, including If We Must Die, because previously it was just in a publication versus right. in one of his collections. Um, so it made it into that collection. And it also assured his, um, assured his stature as a leading um, member of the literary movement referred to as the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, he used his acclaim to redouble his efforts on behalf of blacks and laborers and became involved with the Universal Negro Improvement Association and produced several articles for the publication. He traveled to the Soviet Union and then eventually to Paris where he developed a severe respiratory infection and supported himself intermittently by working as an artist's model. Oh. Yeah. Uh, eventually he had to be hospitalized for his illness but recovered and continued to travel for the next 11 years in Europe and parts of Northern Africa. During that time, he published three novels uh, and a short story collection. His book, Home to Harlem, was the first one, and it proved extremely popular and gained recognition as the first commercially successful novel by a black writer. Wow. Yeah. It was followed by Banjo, uh, A Story Without a Plot, mm -hmm. which was less well-received but confirmed his reputation as a serious provocative artist. Um and his third novel, Banana Bottom, is agreed by critics as being McKay's most skillful delineation of the black individual's predicament in white society. Though, Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. Though the novel's thematic worth was largely ignored when the, first, when the book first appeared in 1933, reviews at the time were related to his extraordinary uh, evocation of the Jamaican tropics and mastery of melodrama. Um, so people weren't, like, focusing on the actual theme of the book. They were just like, right. oh, he makes Jamaica sound so pretty. Um, but in ensuing years, uh, Banana Bottom has gained increasing acknowledgement as McKay's finest fiction and the culmination of his efforts to articulate his own tension and unease um, through the novel. Mm. He eventually moved to Chicago in the late 1930s or 1940s, early 1940s, and um, worked as a teacher uh, by the mid-1940s, his health deteriorated, and eventually um, he died of heart failure in May 1948. Uh, in the years immediately following his death, his reputation um, sort of continued to decline. Before he moved to Chicago, he had published another novel that just wasn't as well received. And um, in his first two books, there were some criticisms that, like, 
his characters and the themes weren't as like fully developed as they could be. Um, and so that sort of happened again with the, that other novel that was published um, after Banana Bottom. And so that's why they say his reputation continued to decline because people were feeling like it wasn't fully fleshed out. Right. Um, but more recently, he's gained recognition for his, quote, intense commitment to expressing the predicament of his fellow blacks and is um, admired for... I was typing so fast. Um, devoting. Um, <laughs> I was trying to figure out what I was... Try, what I had tried to type. Mm-hmm. There was only one letter different. I said decoding instead of devoting. Um, gotcha. Yeah. He was admired for devoting his art and life to social protest. Um, he continues to be associated with the Harlem Renaissance, though he lived abroad most of that period. Right, but he was um, writing during the time. Yeah. Yeah. So they considered him um, a, a, like a writer of that time. Yeah. Um, he has also found new audiences among readers of Commonwealth literature and gay and lesbian literature. Um, in his novels, there have been critics like he. I don't think he wasn't necessarily like openly gay, right. but um, like there literary like critics and everything. And yeah, yeah. And some of the characters, the way that they he like has these different scenes of talking about men and their views of men, other men, and whatever. So there's some um, critics who think that perhaps he was expressing his some of his own sexual uh, preferences and whatever through his okay. work. Um, so. Uh, this is a quote, I think, probably from uh, the Poetry Foundation, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that he was able to capture a universi- universality of sentiment in If We Must Die, the poem, um, has been fully demonstrated, that he was able to show new directions for the black novel is now acknowledged, and that he is rightly regarded as one of the harbingers of, not, if not one of the participants in, the Harlem Renaissance is undisputed. Um, so that's just to say that again, that like he, even though like some of his works maybe weren't as fleshed out as people wanted and that sort of thing, like he had a very strong voice and did really important things for literature and art at the time and especially for, um, people of color, um, at the time and to move them forward and to get them recognition that they were not receiving, uh, before then. So the poem that I chose to do before I did all this research um, is If We Must Die. The Great. one that, oh, yeah. Because um, I read it and it just, I, um, I I didn't necessarily read about him or when he was alive or any of that, but I like saw a short little bio of him under the poem and figured I knew that it, it was about like sort of civil rights and, and like the struggle of being a colored person in America and just in the world. But it's also, like, I can, when I read it for the first time, like, I could, I got that feeling, like it said, of its universality and how it can apply to, uh, to a vast, like, breadth of people who are just going through injustices in the world and that sort of thing. So, um, this is If We Must Die. If we must die, let it not be like hogs, hunted and penned in an inglorious spot, while round... While round us bark the mad and hungry dogs, making their mock at our accursed lot. If we must die, oh, let us nobly die, so that our precious blood may not be shed in vain. Then even the monsters we defy shall be constrained to honor us through dead, though dead. O oh, kinsmen, we must meet the common foe. Though far outnumbered, let us show us brave, and for their thousand blows deal one death blow. What though before us lies the open grave? 
like men, will face the murderous, cowardly pack, pressed to the wall, dying, but fighting back. Yeah. So, what a battle cry. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's really powerful. And it's like that image of like these people struggling with their backs against the wall and everything, but still fighting as hard as they can mm-hmm. to get what they deserve and, and yeah. it sucks and, that it's still such a universal theme today. Yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's awful. It, it sucks because it's like, yeah, we're just another two white people talking about like, oh God, it sucks, right? You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. But it's, it, I mean, we're not just saying this. We are out there, you know, trying to speak our truth and, and, and fight mm-hmm. in the ways that we can. But it's it's so unfortunate that yeah. this is still such well, a and I think, problem. Yeah, I think it's really important for people who are in a position of... Um, of uh, Higher privilege. Yeah, of privilege to share this message and talk about what's behind it rather and not just like share this poem and be like, and be oh, like isn't this cool? This like is whatever. The thing. Yeah. But like actually right. talk about what's behind it and the issue behind it and and because that's what actually matters. Right. And that's right. what's actually important about it. Like yeah, these words like just on its own sort of uh taken out of context are like it's a really great poem. But like knowing the struggle behind it and why he's speaking those words are what's really important and what people need to hear and the story they need to hear. And, and they're not always shared because he was a person of color. And right. so people who are in a position of privilege who other people may listen, be more likely to listen to for whatever stupid reasons, reasons yeah. like need to be putting that out there into the world. Um, right. and so, yeah, I think that's really important. Um, but I just thought it was a really strong and powerful poem and clearly other people did too because it was one of his most notable it's, poems. The imagery is it's so striking. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, exactly what you were saying about you know, the, the army fighting with it, their backs against the wall. You know, mm-hmm. that's... I mean, it's... It is a very scary image to imagine yourself in their shoes. Yeah. But then, what a... What a burst of pride you can get from from realizing that yeah they're fighting back and and like what an awful thing to have to even consider to like die for what you believe in right but like the fact that they are willing to fight to the death to get what they deserve and what they are due um yeah it's just it's really powerful and very um very strong very moving yeah well done so that was claude mckay Thank you for sharing. Yes, of course. I think it's time for a small, small little break. sponsor break. I suppose so. We should probably go blow my nose. We'll be right back. He <laughs> said, she said, we all said. We all said, what were my fingers doing? That's all right. Right? Yeah, sure. Yep. And we're back. Are we back? You good? Sure. Do you want a drink first? Or? I'm going to eat some ice cream. Great. I'm going to talk some. You do that. So my first poet is Arthur Rimbaud. Mm. He is a French poet, born October 20th, 1854. His father was absent for most of his childhood, and he had a difficult relationship with his mother. She mm. was authoritarian and a devout Christian, which were two things Arthur proudly renounced. <laughs> 
Arthur associated her with the values he rejected, including conventional religious beliefs and practices, the principles of hard work and scholarly endeavor, patriotism, and social snobbery. According Wait, he, to... He renounced these things. He renounced the hard... Like, hard... Working yeah, hard. he was like, I don't want to work hard and be a scholar. He... This was also, like, France in the 1850s. So, like... It was, I feel like that's like the ultimate stereotype of a poet, right? He was like, like renouncing working hard. And I don't being want to like, work hard and learn books. I want to to write my feelings. So anyway, it I is want to be a minstrel. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like that's just what, that's what makes me to be a minstrel. Exactly what that is. Song. I think every to poet, <laughs> I think every poet's required to say that to their parents at some point. Like, I want to be a minstrel. <laughs> Not that yet. I feel happy. I might get better. <laughs> I think I might pull through. <laughs> anyway, in his late teens, he ran away from home three times in the course Good. of one year. Good, good, good. The Franco-Prussian War had just broken out. Oh, awesome. That's a great time to run away from home. <laughs> right. So Arthur's <clears throat> school closed, and, and that ended his formal education. So he, like, the school closed. How old was he? Uh, young. This was late teens. Well, I guess it was, like, 17, 18. And so instead of, he didn't finish, like, his mm-hmm. 18th year in school. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Anyway. I don't think that's how <laughs> No, like, he didn't finish, like, his 18th year year around in in life while in school he didn't finish senior year yeah exactly (laughs) he dropped out because the school closed (laughs) i don't think that sounded as dropping out well he didn't go to like a different school you know like nobody made him go back well were the other schools open i don't know probably in lieu of schooling (laughs) he ran away to paris but unfortunately was arrested at the train station for traveling without a ticket and was briefly imprisoned Mm -hmm. it's fine Mm -hmm. But after that, he spent a few months wandering around France and Belgium before his mother had him forcibly returned home by the police. He became a minstrel. <laughs> he was just wandering around France and Germany. Yeah, and then his mom was like, get back here, Arthur! And Arthur? I thought his name was Arthur. Yeah. had him. Arthur the minstrel! I don't know why he's British. He's from France. Arthur the minstrel! Because Arthur's a very, like, English name, like, I feel like. It's you know, but I'm not Arthur, French. the minstrel. So. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Voices with Marguerite. I'm working on my dialects. How am I doing? Jesus Christ. (laughs) Lord help us. Uh, All right. So his mother had him forcibly returned home. Uh, But he ran away again. Go figure, because he didn't want to be there. Um, Early next... I don't want to be here. (laughs) Early the next year to join the insurgents in the Paris Commune. But... He conveniently returned home three weeks later, just before the commune was brutally suppressed by the army. Because he didn't want to work hard. Exactly. (laughs) During this time of his life, it is said that he was developing his own poetic style, as well as his theory of voyance, which is a visionary program in which the poetic process becomes the vehicle for exploration of other realities. So he was like... Like clairvoyance? Kind of, but through poetry. So he was like, I want to... I want to be able to express, like, all the realms with my words. (laughs) Um, He would write these theories in depth to his friends. 
He was so drawn to Paris during the time with the hopes of meeting the leading poets of the time, especially one Paul Verlaine. He wrote to Paul Verlaine with some of his poetry, to which Paul replied, quote, Come, great and dear soul, we are calling out to you. We are awaiting you. So in September of 1871, Arthur finally moved to Paris and lived with Paul Verlaine and his wife. Arthur and Paul, however, began a secret romance shortly mm. after the move, which caused Verlaine's marriage to just go to the wayside, yeah. you know, in in his house. <laughs> it was like, right. oh, I'm also going to sleep with this guy. I invited this person into our home, and I'm going to sleep with him now. It'll be That's great. That's what we're doing. It'll be totally fine. Don't worry about it. It's Is that France. okay? It's France. Okay. Arthur's early poems collected in the publication... I don't have a French accent, but it's called Poetry, translated in English. It's like, Poesie. It's literally, Poesie. Poesies. <laughs> no, it's <laughs> not. That's but what it, it looks like, though, right? Kind of. Uh, they were written between 1869 and 1872, and they were published by Verlaine in 1895, a few years after Arthur's death. <clears throat> These poems were written in help... Uh, written to help Arthur find his language, his style. He was still pretty young at this time. I think he was like 19. Um, many of the themes expressed in these poems are the same themes people associate with him today, including the absurdity of war, hypocrisy, the physical joys of bohemian lifestyle, and satirizing the bourgeoisie. The poems found in this first collection also display Arthur's longing to, quote, transcend the strictures and constraints of orthodox verse and take poetry on an audacious journey into previously unsuspected technical and visionary realms. That's thanks to the Poetry Foundation. Much of his poetry was used to, as a tool to break down the traditional views of poetry in his time. He did this by purposefully choosing language that was considered unpoetic and structuring his poems in ways that defied the rules of poetry set out by his predecessors. Which I feel like a lot of people that we read that are like at the turn of the century or like at this like changing point in history where something big is happening. Like mm -hmm. they're breaking the boundaries themselves and <clears throat> trying to switch it up. But his search for a universal language is a defining feature of his work. He wanted poetry to be accessible to everybody and he thought that the best way to do that would be to like re- purpose words and hmm. make them mean something a little different than what, or like a little more attainable than what they might normally be considered. Interesting. Um, Interesting to try to make words more accessible by changing their meaning. <laughs> not necessarily changing the meaning, but just like using them in a way that was not your typical speech of the time. Okay. So kind of like Shakespeare Mm -hmm. Where he was like, I wrote for the the peons, you know, like the little, the, what are they called? The pennies, the people, groundlings. Jesus. Um, he wrote for the groundlings, and that's sort of what this guy was doing. Okay. In March of 1972, Arthur moved back home to Char Charleville to let the Verlaines try to reconcile their marriage. But while home, he wrote a collection called Last Verses, which would be published in La Vogue, in 1886. La Vogue. La Vogue. And these were highly experimental poems influenced greatly by Verlaine's style, actually. So mm. they had a wistful tenderness and musicality that varied from Arthur's other more aggressive previous works. So he was missing 
the dude. He was. Well, the thing is, is it's so funny. I, I, we'll talk about it in a minute because it okay. just sort of comes full circle. Mm-hmm. Um, he does not give up his heavy topics of discussion, though. So during this like flowery, wistful time, the product that he's getting is like this light as air form of poetry mm-hmm. that's like about an incredibly weighty topic. Interesting. So that really showed readers Arthur's deep need to separate himself from commonplace things. Mm-hmm. So describing things in a different way again was like his style. Yeah. In May nineteen I'm sorry, in May eighteen seventy two, which is so you'll remember this was in March he was writing this. Okay. So in May, Verlaine begged Arthur to come back to Paris. Mm. Then in July he left his wife and children and went to London with Arthur. Oh wow. But then in April <sighs> Arthur returned to his family in Charleville but then May returned to Verlaine in London, and after lots of fighting and, and clearly what was just a toxic mess of a relationship, Arthur mm-hmm. tried to end the relationship in July. Verlaine was so hurt by this that he shot Arthur in the wrist. Just the wrist, though. <laughs> and, and was like, eh, there you go. And That's what you get. Was it his running hand? Probably, I don't know. Oh, God. After leaving the hospital where Arthur insisted that the shot had been an accident, to like all the people to like mm-hmm. just be like protect him one last time. Yeah. The two men were walking outside and Verlaine reached into his pocket and Arthur was so afraid that he was going to get shot again. He ran to the policeman and then the truth came out and Verlaine was sentenced to two years of hard labor in a Belgian prison. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's a lot for just shooting someone in the wrist, they feel Well, like. it was like they thought, oh, he's going to do it again. Oh, like, he's going to kill he him thought, this time. Yeah, right. Okay. I mean, he, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't, we don't know. Uh, but so Arthur again returned home to write a poem called, which I think is just great, it's called Une Saison en Enfer, or A Season in Hell, mm. just shortly after. Mm, just, yeah. just sending his lover off to prison. Right. Um, again, Arthur experimented with themes and styles, recreating himself in a new artistic endeavor. This new work was an intensely personal account of private torture and the search for a spiritual and an artistic resolution, which was something that he had previously denounced right. you know, in his earlier life. Yeah, like but again, and everything. remember, this is literally, like, he was ni- 18, 19 when he started writing. Mm-hmm. He's 20 now, you know? It's, like, only a, been, like, a year and a half. Mm-hmm. I thought you I were mean, saying at first that this was a long time, and I'm like, that's... Not no, like, like the, he's just flip flopping, you know. And like, yeah, and well, he's gone through a lot of stuff in just those few short years, right? So, <clears> at <throat> the age of twenty-one, which is at this point, Arthur just abandons poetry. Wow, having only written for five years, wow. he's like, I'm done. He traveled, enlisted in the Dutch army, but deserted them in Sumatra. He traveled some cool. more all over the world before <clears> settling <throat> in Yemen as a coffee trader and explorer. But, like, he truly abandoned poetry. I mean, he stopped, once he stopped writing, he stopped talking about it and forgot that it existed. Like, he, none of his correspondence mentioned any of his previous writings, even though he was, like, talking to people back in um, France and, like, all this stuff. But the world didn't forget about him, which was interesting because all of his stuff was so prominent in the time. So Verlaine continued to publish some of Arthur's poems that he had written while there and Arthur was just sort of like whatever okay fine but like I'm not acknowledging it I'm not writing anymore hmm. I don't want to do interviews I don't want to do anything about it so in uh, in 1891 Arthur developed a tumor in his right knee 
returned to France for treatment where he got his leg amputated. And then he returned to his family farm to rest and heal, but his health deteriorated. And he died of cancer on November 10th, 1891, with his sister Isabel by his side. So he was 37, I think, when he wow. died. Like, he was really young. Really what did young. he die of again? Cancer. Um, so a lot of his poems were very beautiful, um, but they're very long, almost epic poems. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are like short chapbook length, but it's just one poem. Wow. So uh, I'm doing excerpts from a poem, Phrases. Okay. And it was translated by Wallace Fowley. When the world is reduced to a single dark wood for our two pairs of dazzled eyes, to a beach for two faithful children, to a musical house for our clear understanding, then I shall find you. When there is only one old man on earth, lonely, peaceful, handsome, living in unsurpassed luxury, then I am at your feet. When I have realized all your memories, When I am the girl who can tie your hands, then I will stifle you. When we are very strong, who draws back? Or very happy, who collapses from ridicule? When we are very bad, what can they do to us? Dress up, dance, laugh. I will never be able to throw love out of the window. That's one excerpt. And then the other excerpt is this. I stretched out ropes from spire to spire, garlands from window to window, golden chains from star to star, and I dance. Hmm. It's just like, <clears throat> I, it's, it's a very, to me, it's, uh, it's very heavy with imagery, yeah. this poem in particular, um, but it's, it's just, it, it has a simplicity to it. Mm-hmm. that is kind of similar to these modern-day poets that we have going on now. But I know that, I mean, it, when you read the whole, the poem in its entirety, yep. there I, I pulled out some that I found were, like, a little more difficult for me to understand, and I really just wanted to get to, like, the beauty uh-huh. in the words where right. I, I was like, this is easy for me to yeah, get, yeah, let me yeah, just yeah, read yeah, it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, his work is very swirling. It's It's mm-hmm. got this, like, I, th- I feel like this maybe was from his musical, like the musicality period where he was very mm-hmm. whimsical and maybe yeah. light. Um, but yeah, I just, I really liked those words. Mm-hmm. I thought it was very pretty. Especially the, the imagery is very beautiful. Yeah, especially that um, I stretched out ropes from spire to spire, you know, and I dance. Mm-hmm. I, I think that and was. Star to star, whatever it was. Yeah, it, yeah. it's just such a, it's, it, it, to me, it seems very. Like he's really talking about this like bohemian lifestyle of I make I make my my ballroom wherever mm-hmm. I go and and I dance and it's you know very free and very yeah. simple in that sense. Mm-hmm. So that is Arthur Rambo. <laughs> very cool. Yeah. Sounds like a really interesting guy. Yeah, he is. Lived an interesting life, although sh- cut short. Yeah, cut very short. Mm-hmm. Cancer stuck. Yeah. Okay. My next poet, though, is one I'm very excited about, mostly because I just downloaded his book today, and I've been mm. reading it nonstop. Oh, that's awesome. Um, his name is Rudy Francisco. Rudy. Yeah, Francisco. Makes mm-hmm. me think of um, 
Bob's Burgers? Is that yeah, what Rudy? <laughs> Normal Rudy. set, regular size Rudy. Regular size Rudy. <laughs> yeah, so Rudy Francisco is a modern day poet. Hey. He is one of the most recognizable names of spoken word poetry. His he name was, sounds familiar. Yeah. yeah. If you if you heard his work, like yeah. him perform it, you'd be like, oh, I got you. Yeah. He was born, raised, and still resides in San Diego, California. He is currently 37 years old. Oh, you know what? Hmm. I think Arthur was older than 37. And I think I just said 37. Someone will do the math. Because uh, Rudy is. Yeah, because Rudy's. Anyway, we'll figure that out. Uh, Rudy. <laughs> Corrections for next week. <laughs> We've got him coming. Already. Uh, Rudy is currently 37 years old. At age 21... Rudy completed his BA in psychology and decided to continue his education by pursuing a master's of arts in organizational studies. Huh. I don't know what that necessarily means. That's but interesting, yeah. Yeah, so kind of a different path. As an artist, he describes himself, this is also pretty much verbatim from his website's bio. Okay. Uh, just because it was, there's not a lot of information about yeah. him. But I like, forgot a lot of the information for Philip was from his... Um, his website. Yeah. It's and just like, some added things from I, I feel like he wrote this bio and it's like the best way to explain him. Awesome. So as an artist, he describes himself as an amalgamation of social critique, introspection, honesty, and humor. He uses personal narratives to discuss the politics of race, class, gender, and religion while simultaneously pinpointing and reinforcing the interconnected nature of human existence. Rudy seeks to create a world that promotes healthy dialogue discourse and social change furthermore he has made conscious efforts to cultivate young poets and expose the youth to the genre of spoken word poetry through coaching workshops performances at prep schools and community centers that's awesome i wonder if he probably knows sarah k and philip k oh i would assume so and i like, mean i feel like yeah, yeah and like have to have crossed at least yeah yeah for sure um He's also received admiration from institutions of higher education. He's conducted guest lectures and performances at countless colleges and universities across the nation. Rudy has shared stages with prominent artists such as Gladys Knight, Jordan Sparks, Music Soul Child, and Jill Scott. He is also the co-host of the largest poetry venue in San Diego, mm. competes in domestic and international poetry slam competitions, and has had the honor of being nominated for an NAACP Image Award. Wow. So he is, I mean, and, and I'm reading this poetry and I'm just like, there is not, I mean, like, I think that it can't get any realer. And then I flip the page and it's like, boom, it just like hits you again with this. It's, it's mm, amazing. It's so, it's such a visceral type of poetry that he writes. It's just like, you're reading it on the page, but it's, it's reaching out to grab you. It's, it's mm -hmm. so exciting to listen to. Um, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately, Rudy's goal is to continue to assist others in harnessing their creativity while cultivating his own. Rudy Francisco is the 2009 National Underground Poetry Slam Champion, 2010 Individual World Poetry Slam Champion, and appeared on TV One's Verses and Flow. His poetry books include Getting Stitches, Scratch, No Gravity, Parts 1 and 2, and his newest book, Helium, which is what I'll be reading from. In March 2018, Rudy performed his poem, Complainers, from Helium on The Tonight Show. He is the first person to do a full-length poem on The Tonight Show that, stage. Yeah, that's so, awesome. It's really cool. 
And it's a Very really cool. good poem, too. Ooh. But I'm not going to read you we'll that one. To, we'll have to share it on the Facebook page. So it's funny that you said Sarah Kay. Yeah. Because I found about out about Rudy Francisco through Project Voices 30 Days of Poetry within oh. April. Um, one of the prompts, if you guys remember, we were doing this series on Instagram um, of our where you write a different poem with a different prompt every day. Each weekday, and yeah. Each weekday. And you'll find ours in our story, like our highlight section on our Instagram page. Mm-hmm. We each kind of went on and off and switched off and, and wrote all these different poems, and it was really fun. Um, and so one of them, one of the prompts, which we didn't actually post, I was working on it, it just took me a little longer than I thought it would, um, was the My, uh, my Honest Poem. Mm-hmm. And it was like an I am poem, essentially. And they linked, they said, if you want inspiration, check out Rudy Francisco's My Honest Poem. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll check it out. And I did, and I was like, oh, shit, this is so good. And, like, and he's just a really exciting performer, too. And it, anyway, so I decided what better one to do than his My Honest Poem. Wow. And so that is what this is. It's called, again... My Honest Poem. What's it called? My yeah. Honest Poem. Great. Okay. This is My Honest Poem. <laughs> is this... Go ahead. Are you done? Okay. <laughs> I was born on July 27th. I hear that makes me a Leo. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I'm 5'6 and a half. I weigh 175 pounds. I don't know how to swim... I'm a sucker for a girl with a nice smile and clean sneakers. Hmm. I'm still learning how to whisper. I'm loud in places where I should be quiet. I'm quiet in places where I should be loud. Mm. I was born feet first, and I've been backwards ever since. I like ginger ale. A lot. I've been told that I give really bad hugs. People say it feels like I'm trying to escape. Sometimes it's because I am. I get really nervous every time someone gets close enough to hear me breathe. I have an odd fascination with sandcastles and ice sculptures, things that will only last a few moments. That's also why I fall in love with women who will never love me back. I know it sounds crazy, but it's actually much easier than it seems, and I think it's safer that way. Relationships remind me that I'm not afraid of heights or falling, but I'm afraid of what's going to happen when my body hits the ground. I'm clumsy. Yesterday, I tripped over my self-esteem, landed on my pride, and it mm. shattered like an iPhone with a broken face. Mm. Now I can't even tell who's trying to give me a compliment. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder what my bedsheets say about me when I'm not around. I wonder what the curtains would do if they found out about all the things I've done behind their backs. I've got a hamper full of really loud mistakes and a graveyard in my closet. I'm afraid if I let you see my skeletons, you'll grind my bones into powder and get high on my fault lines. Mm. I've never been in the military, but I have this purple heart. I got it from beating myself up over things I can't fix. Some days I forget that my skin is not a panic room. Hi, my name is Rudy. I enjoy frozen yogurt, people watching, and laughing for absolutely no reason at all, but I don't allow myself to cry as often as I need to. I have solar-powered confidence and a battery-operated smile, My hobbies include editing my life story, hiding behind metaphors, and trying to convince my shadow that I'm someone worth following. I don't know much, but I do know this. Heaven is full of music, and God listens to my heartbeat on his iPod. It reminds him 
that we still got work to do. Uh, Isn't that just like, oh, wow. and it's so fun to read. Mm-hmm. It's literally like every single one of his poems, and they're not all that long. Some of them are literally like the Instagram poem, like yeah. a line or two. Uh-huh. And they are all so much fun to speak and like his rhythm, the cadence is so easily followed on the page that it's like, yeah, I've listened to him I mean, a hundred times now, yeah. read this poem. Right. But I could have listened to it once and gotten Been what he was like, doing, yeah. you know? Like, mm-hmm. just like, it, he he grabs you from the page. It's remarkable. Yeah. And, Spoken word poetry and like, oh And it's God, like it's... sometimes, sometimes some writers can be, with spoken word especially, can be really harsh and really not know that balance between when to ebb and flow your, your mm-hmm, words and, mm-hmm. and when to pull back and make it more intimate, you know? Yeah. And, and he does that so well and it fires me up, you know? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it's, it's so liberating to listen to him do these words and he just comes up and he's like, hi, you know, like the sweetest guy, just like whatever, <laughs> you know? And, and he knows the, the weight of the words that he's saying. Yeah. And some of these poems, they deal with a lot heavier stuff than a monologue poem like this uh-huh. where he's like describing himself. But that's also really hard to get up there and talk about yourself and talk about right. your faults and right. the things that you love alongside that. And yeah. and that's actually, that was what the prompt was. Uh-huh. So I'm like still in the process of finishing that poem uh, yeah. because it's like, it's maybe really hard be, to... Maybe that can be one of our Who's to Say yeah, episodes maybe. if you want to share it. Well, and we'll see. I don't know. <laughs> it's a good one, but it's a good prompt is what I mean. Yeah. It's like a... It's yeah, a really interesting... Yeah, should go, go have a look at the prompts that they posted, even though it's not April anymore. Go, it's... It's it was so cool good. to have, like, I think we talked about it on one of our episodes before, but it was just cool to have prompts that are something that you wouldn't normally write about or think to write about or in a way that you wouldn't think to look at something. Right, exactly. Um, it's really, it, it is really, uh, it's fun. It's sort of like taking a poetry class mm-hmm. where you're like, okay, my teacher told me I have to write about this today. And right. Whereas normally I would probably just write about the same four things my whole life. Mm-hmm. It, when I, I'm given this challenge, it was exciting. It was fun yeah. to be like, oh, I don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm going to have to like really sit down and try, you know? Yeah. And it, it, it's fun because sometimes you get you get stuck in that rut of like, I've been talking about the same relationship for the past four years, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me out. Let me try and explore things. And I think... What Rudy does is is really special, and in this book that is so well curated, he's he's broken it up into three different parts, and it's like the first one, oh god, there's oh it's just there's so many. I want to read the whole book on here, you know, like it's just it's fun to read, it's fun to to see, and and it, it's very um, commonplace almost. It's it's very it's very what's the word pedestrian mm-hmm. where like one of the poems is this the title is this run-on sentence like Mm -hmm. it's like to the girl to the to the barista at starbucks at this specific location Uh i swear i'm not a stalker Uh and then the poem and it's like the Uh title itself is is pulled into the whole narrative and and he just he's amazing please go look him up i'm obsessed with him clearly it's it's amazing but wonderful yeah thank you that's rudy He's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening again. And 
Uh, like always, we want to give a huge, huge shout out to Zach Adkins for our music intro and outro. Thanks so much. You can find more of his work and lots of special stuff on our, his Instagram, which is linked in the description on our Instagram. And if you might notice in our description of this episode, there is a sponsor link right down there. You can click on that if you like what you hear and you want to hear more of it and you want more people to experience the fun that you're having yeah. <laughs> listening to us. For you, literally less than a dollar, 99 cents a yeah, month. You it's, can... it's something little that you can do to help show us, hey, we really like what you're doing. We appreciate you. Keep keep at it. And help get better for you. Yeah, exactly. Better equipment, better equipment. <laughs> <laughs> better equipment, better outreach, you know, all the good stuff. Yeah. Um, and as always, you can rate and review us especially on Apple Podcasts. Thank you, everybody, who's done it so far. Uh, oh, once again, exciting news. You can find us now on Stitcher. Yes, I was just about to say that. We're too. so excited yeah, about we've it. We've been saying you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, and for the most part, that has been true, but we've been holding out for Stitcher, <laughs> and we are now on Stitcher. So now, officially, I think we are on all of the sort of mainstream yeah. apps and platforms and whatnot. Yay! So we are super excited about that so accessible it's ridiculous no excuses not to listen and if your friends have not been able to listen because they use stitcher go tell them right now we're on stitcher shout it from the rooftops tag us in your stories tell us tell the world about us tell the world (laughs) tell the good news so anyway thank you for listening (laughs) as always this has been an amazing episode 10 so yeah we're in the double digits now we're pre-teens hey look at us about to hit puberty That's all for us, guys. (laughs) Have a great night. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Bye.